Hello, my relatives. Welcome to season one of Reclaiming the Child Welfare Narrative with the Capacity Building Center for Tribes. We recognize the need for change in our child welfare systems, and our desire is to examine how these systems do or don't align with our tribal values. We hope to create conversations that honor our interconnectedness and reclaim a child welfare narrative that tells our story. Welcome everyone to today's episode. Are child welfare decisions better using peacemaking circles? This episode will dive into a current practice happening in Indian country. Our guest will share about peacemaking circles and how this brings our community together to support one another and how this fits with tribal child welfare practice, particularly in that decision. We will also take a look at any resistance that may come from within and any challenges that come with traditional methodologies. We are all fortunate to have Brett Shelton join us for our previous episode and felt that we really needed to call him back uh, with us and just learn some more from him. So Brett, I'm gonna have you go ahead and introduce yourself for us. Oh, hi, thank you. I'm Brett Lee Shelton. I'm a member of the Oglala Sioux tribe. Our home reservation is the Pine Ridge Reservation in Southwestern South Dakota. And I work for the Native American Rights Fund uh, out of their Boulder, Colorado headquarters. Great. So let's get started. Can you just share with us how you got started or what was your first exposure into these peacemaking circles? Sure. As a, as a formal sort of an introduction to the study of them, I was in law school um, and we had a, a justice from the Navajo Nation Supreme Court guest teaching our, our Native American common law class. This was at Stanford Law School in the middle 90s. And as part of his introduction to the way stuff run on the uh, things run on the tribal level, he brought out the head peacemaker from the Navajo court system or in at Navajo, they have a peacemaking system within their overall court system. And so I saw that and uh, I was attracted to it right away. It just felt like a great way to, to do decisions in a lot of cases. I just kind of clicked with it, you know, rather than just the adversarial system that I was learning about at the time. This was a, a way of doing things that was more collaborative and seemed to draw on, on input from all sorts of people to an issue. So I, was, I thought it was really potentially really helpful and I was really interested in it. I had also been studying mediation at the time, and um, I had really liked that as well. And the peacemaking, as it was introduced to us, looked a lot like mediation. So it was just like, hey, this is cool. It's like a native version, even. And that was set me down the path, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and since that time, I tried to stay involved as much as I could. And I found out um, early in my career that NARF, the Native American Rights Fund, where I work, had a peacemaking project as early as 1992. And they had kind of had to keep it alive on life support at times, but at other times it was able to kick into full gear. And, and um, when they created the position that I stepped into, let's see, that would be nine years ago or so, um, it included a, a responsibility for the Indigenous Peacemaking Initiative, their project, and, and they were able to dedicate um, seriously more attorney time to it at that point for the first time. So it was like the custom-made job for me, a person with an interest in this, able to work with tribes and help them implement traditional dispute resolution systems across the nation. 
So that's interesting. So it's really been a part of your career, so to speak. Um, and, and I sometimes think about how we happen upon a particular practice or the practice finds us. And so it's interesting to hear how long you've been doing this, Brett. That's, that's fantastic. So, you know, along with what your experience was learning with the Navajo people, and then, of course, moving along and, and doing more work with NARF, um, tell me a little bit more about your experience in working, um, you know, in peacemaking. And for some of our listeners out there, you know, really kind of helping us to describe what that peacemaking circle looks like. Okay, yeah, it helps to kind of understand what, what's going on. So instead of a system, the adversarial main court system that people are generally used to, where the two sides basically fight it out in front of a neutral third party, um, peacemaking or peace circles, as we call them sometimes, because that's a pretty descriptive term, required that people come together and talk about an issue. That's, that's what it is in a nutshell. Um, they'll usually sit in a circle and um, discuss what the issue is at hand. And there will be somebody who's experienced and, and talented at helping them discuss an issue and come to a, uh, to a conclusion. So they're good as a facilitator. That means they might help be good at helping people work through emotions and continue to talk respectfully and, and to cover issues and to help people who are quiet to come out and, and find their voice and contribute to a decision. Um, basically, instead of limiting the, the discussion of the resolution to the two parties, you try to get other people involved because they may have something constructive to contribute. And in fact, it may, be a, it may be an accurate way to describe it that you really want to get anybody who can positively contribute to a, a good outcome. In the case of child welfare decisions, it's like who can, who can help make a good decision with respect to the children at issue? And let's bring them all in and talk about it and see what they have to say from their perspectives and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Looks like talking in a circle. Um, there will be certain things that are common and certain things that will vary depending on the context and the situation. Of course, these are traditional um, ways of doing things. So that's going to vary by the tribe and by the nation, by the history. Sometimes people retain this. Other times they may have lost it, but there's you know related tribes that they can model after, or they can just start by discussing stuff in a circle. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so there's going to be variations based on location and so on. But you'll see certain things that are common, like a talking piece. A lot of times it might be a talking stick, might be a basket. Sometimes it's a feather that may be appropriate to some cultures, and it is. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, whatever, whatever works in the particular context is what happens. But um, that goes around and everybody talks about what, what can happen, what should happen, how they were impacted by, the, by whatever brought this situation. Um, mm -hmm. And they all try to reach a consensus about what should happen moving forward. And that consensus is a pretty key part of it all, too. Yeah. I should point out this, this may sound a lot like restorative justice. And actually, restorative justice does have its roots in indigenous practices like these circle practices. Um, a lot of times in restorative justice programs, they'll sit in a circle and they'll pass a talking piece around and so on. And yes, it, it, they do recognize that it does come from indigenous practices. But I like to point out that um, these are practices that our, our native ancestors basically developed over centuries and millennia of living together and having to live together in community continually rather than fighting about stuff and then everybody having a grudge and walking away with hurt feelings, right? So it's a, it's a way that you develop to deal with issues 
that helps you continue to live together as you work through things that come up. Um, it, you know, compare that to a court system where a lot of times if we go to court, nobody's really happy. Neither party's happy when they leave court, I think, generally. And you can basically disappear into anonymity if you live in a city. You go have it. You go have your fight. You may leave mad at the other party and mad at the judge still, but you can disappear. And so, you know, all kinds of stuff can happen when you're not accountable or, or trying to live together after after the fight, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's probably part of why this system works good and, and did develop over those millennia. And it reminds me a little bit when we talked with you earlier about the family group decision making. Uh, similarly, I know that a lot of child welfare systems have uh, brought that into their practice. In fact, it was initially brought in kind of as a way to decide permanency, but what we're seeing is systems beginning to bring it in earlier. And again, recognizing that this was a practice that was brought to us from, I want to say, New Zealand. And so um, what I um, really, really appreciate when we're looking at kind of reclaiming this narrative, kind of figuring out what we need to do, what practices work for us as Indigenous people are things like this, these peacemaking circles. And I love that you talk about that, you know, generally they are designed by those who use them, right? So if you're going into a particular area in Indian country, you know, it's really them who are creating that shared vision of what they need or, you know, how they want to design and bring in some of their specific teachings. But, but the idea I hear you saying around these circles is just having that, that equal kind of playing field, I guess. Yeah, that's a big part of it. it, it and, and interesting to know that it, that uh, family group decision-making does have its roots in, in basically a Maori model of the indigenous mm -hmm. folks from New Zealand. So good observation on your part. And that's all part of this. I mean, I would say that probably indigenous cultures worldwide sit and discuss their problems in a circle and figure it out and come to us in consensus so they can move forward in, in a uniform kind of opinion about what should happen, right? So um, makes a lot of sense. And yet you do get the benefit of all the different viewpoints coming to bear on the situation. Um, so different people have different perspectives. They can see different things. They might contribute different ideas towards a constructive solution. Um, they, they also have different impacts. So if somebody's done wrong, it helps to have them be able to voice that so that somebody can understand that what they've been doing has impacted all these different people in these different ways. Or in the case of children, all these different people care about these children and have been paying attention and they feel this way. It helps them actually feel supported with respect to the child too. And, and then they can contribute positively, not just with ideas, but also with actions about the outcome. So it's it's a possibility that grandparents might say, we'll watch those children when you have these difficulties with them. And that can come out in the circle and that kind of stuff just out of randomness can't come out in a court because there's too many rules around communication and so on. And the grandparents might not even be allowed in the hearing. So so who decides who's going to be there then at, in these and participate in these circles? So. For child welfare, for example. Usually the parties will decide who needs to be there. The The peacemaker will, you know, have experience and, and know how to set these things up. So they'll meet with the parties and say, who 
who should be here? Who do you think would be helpful in, in talking about this? And it'll also help the party feel supported if they have people that they would like to be there. And there's mm -hmm. rules around how they communicate. So it's not like one side could bully the other by getting more and more people on their side and so on. A good peacemaker will be able to, to mitigate that or kind of help uh, help stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they would talk to the parties and say who, who ought to be here. And they may have a sense themselves about who might be helpful as well. So there could be, you know, elders in the community who are familiar with child welfare issues and what values, what shared, you know, native values might come to play. And they could ask if the parties would agree to having them come in as a resource and, and so on. Basically, the parties and the peacemaker will the you know, peacemaker being the, the facilitator, the expert, will be most involved in deciding who comes. And you mm -hmm. definitely need the party's consent about everybody who will be there. You don't want people who are going to stop the process, basically, by making the parties freeze up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I imagine even as you talked about, because, you know, having done child welfare work for maybe six years for a tribe, I recognize that, you know, this is such a delicate, traumatic experience for the family and so I really appreciate when I hear you talk about you know ways to bring in some of our tools um, and and ways in which to kind of guide and protect our spirits and honor kind of what we need to to work through these challenges so tell me a little bit more so when talking again about child welfare have you seen this practice um, really help in making decisions and and do you have any examples you can share about how you've seen decisions happen yeah I, probably the most striking thing is it's really common for families who you you know you, you take assume that both parents have their families in a circle it's not it's not a person versus the government we're not like trying to judge a parent uh or neglect or something, but rather saying these kids are at issue and both your parents are responsible and we're bringing in your, your families as well, your extended families. And it's really common in that sort of a situation, for one, for the two families to be able to get along, even if the parents aren't getting along, because they'll put the child at the center of the, of the focus and they all have an interest in making sure that that child, their, their relative is okay. And, and they start thinking about how they can contribute to that. And so you get all sorts of volunteers about what they can do to help and whether that means help their, help the parent who's their relative or help the other parent too. And you get checks and balances on each other and so on. And they just kind of work it out the way they need to in ways. And, and those sorts of ideas wouldn't necessarily be at a judge's disposal. How's a judge going to know to ask maternal auntie to come in if if it's not just obvious and help paternal grandma when paternal grandma's having troubles because she took over for dad for a while on a weekend or something like that mm -hmm. i mean it's just the infinite possibilities remain open when you mm -hmm. have more people there and um keeping them in a positive constructive attitude about the solution is key and able to happen there whereas mm -hmm. if you're in court it's it's all about the rules of the fight right um, rules of evidence and so on, what you can and can't say. So it's just the focus is totally different and you allow the focus to be on the children and it just opens up the realm of possible solutions. So you see a lot broader mm -hmm. uh, sort of solutions mm -hmm. developed. Mm -hmm. And also uh, recognizing 
I think people will refer to it as just safety planning. So, you know, an, an example I either read uh, from some of the articles you have um, been a part of with peacemaking circles was just um, the fact that, you know, if, if for example, uh, if the family is, you know, um, needing to work or let's say even in some cases with families it's more about not refraining but um just trying to reduce the harm when it comes to use um i've i've heard or read about it ways that families have said okay if you are going to use we will watch your child on this particular day or i mean i know we can't plan our use but you kind of get the idea of what i'm saying so it's not necessarily uh having the court order um, you to abstain and uas it could even be something like if you are going to use we need to make sure that the children are first cared for and looked after um and again i think i've even read if there are um services like so let's say they do want to get sober or that they do want to make changes uh, maybe they've got some anger issues um, that those services could then be located and 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 assist the families is that is that kind of what am i understanding that correctly yeah you bet i mean it, it's all possible as long you know as long as there's a way for it to come into the discussion and yeah, somebody's having use problems or use issues and they're probably going to use, then yes, have a contingency plan or a safety plan for that situation and make it cooperative. You know, all of the family members generally would rather have the children go to some place if somebody's going to be using and thereby not be able to help the children as much as they would normally be able to. So they, they deal with it proactively. And then they will encourage, you know, folks to go get help if, if that's available. Mm -hmm. And they provide a nice safety check or nice like um, nice enforcement to that too. They can, mm -hmm. they can provide the whole realm of reminders rather than just a court order. And then violation of, you know, find, a finding of being in contempt for not following the order, mm -hmm. thereby labeling them as an even worse per person, mm -hmm. thereby probably pushing them down the path, the wrong path, and even further rather than helping them get back on the path. So mm -hmm. it, it lets other people help with enforcement and, and allows the enforcement mechanisms to be other than just what's available to a court. So would the facilitator, so I'm, again, I'm trying to wrap my brain around um, our child welfare system. And, you know, uh, uh, most of the time they create, you know, if there is a removal, and again, I'm just going to talk about if there is a removal, there are always then a case plan you know, typically that needs to be developed with the family. Um, we don't always see that happening. Um, but is that so I, I see that, you know, the needs of what the county or state uh, child welfare system is needing or wanting or the tribe in this case, versus what the family is identifying. So whose who's priorities, I guess, or whose, you know, is there a requirement, I guess, um, for what we need the decision outcomes to look like? 
Probably not. Um, you probably, it's going to be fairly open. I mean, certain restrictions are going to carry through. Um, uh, there's usually mandatory reporting carries through into these contexts and you can't place children where they can't be placed otherwise. So like sex offenders can't, can't have them, can't have placement there. That stuff will carry through, but otherwise it's, it's wide open to what, what could be a consensus among the parties, assuming that's the way that it's uh, set up at, on the local level. Sure. And then typically um, with this sort of a situation, the outcome will be provided to a court and the court will generally give it the force of law if the laws itself don't let the peacemaking outcome be like a court order or something enforceable. In other words, you want to be able to say, you know, if, if something goes wrong, you want to be able to say, no, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be and get it corrected and have, have a help with that. So with court orders, a lot of times we'll have custody around, divvied up around certain times and so on. And a parent will be able to get custody back if they're supposed to have it at a certain time by drawing on say law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing can happen with peacemaking orders or with peacemaking decisions as well, if that's the way they want to do it. So a judge could adopt a peacemaking agreement as an order of the court and then it would be enforceable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. I understand. Okay, good. Well, so let's, let's, I want to hear a little bit about any implementation challenges that you've seen out there. Yeah, that's, um, there's a few that come up kind of repeatedly. The first one that always comes up is funding. Um, how do you fund implementation development and implementation of something new within your tribal justice system? Well, generally, we have to look for funding from the normal federal sources in most cases, and those are already pretty restricted. So what are you going to take money out of from your task grant, for example, that's going to pay for peacemaking instead of what? And that's a real problem. So finding new funding is, is you know, it would be really helpful and it's hard, but mm -hmm. that's, that's the first issue, the threshold issue. How are you going to fund all this? Um, if you're going to pay peacemakers for providing the service and, and providing their time, maybe they have other work that they could be doing. How are you gonna do that? So step one, um, mm -hmm. also we need, we generally need a, from our standpoint, we help tribes all over the country implement things on, on their, you know, in their terms, basically how they wanna do it and help them decide what that means all along the way, if, if necessary. Well, there needs to be a local person or even better group of people who will keep it moving forward on the ground. Somebody needs to be dedicated to it and really believe in it and want it to move. In other words, somebody has to has to ask us and other experts to come in and help. Um, it's not like it's what we do to go out and convince people to do something a certain way and and then they have to get in line. That's not what this is about. That'd be like colonization in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. now, this is about helping communities do things the way that they want to do. And, and a lot of usually that looks a lot more like how their ancestors used to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so we need those local champions. Those are critical. And that's, that's usually the dedicated person who is a true believer, who knows people and helps get stuff going and help keep it going when there's any kind of resistance. And then there can be all sorts of different um, resistance from within the community as well. I mean, it could be personal stuff. And we've seen where the court administrator doesn't like peacemaking for whatever reason, or doesn't like somebody who's pushing peacemaking on a local level. And they just, they, so they, they stall it out. Um, 
I've seen tribal councils not be interested in advancing peacemaking for whatever reason, so it doesn't get any action from the tribal council. Um, there's also, you know, there's, I guess, um, with the effects of assimilation over the years, some native folks don't necessarily believe that native ways are good anymore, that, that more likely we should imitate the way that things are, the way that we've been told by the Bureau we should do and, and so on. And so some people just won't, they'll be resistant to innovating um, in a way that seems like it's adopting of an old way. And so mm -hmm. there could be resistance along that too, even though these systems are you know designed to be in the modern world and so on. So mm -hmm. all sorts and of different, different sorts. It almost sounds too that there is a need for that community understanding of what the intention is because i think i can only picture myself you know as a as a tribal member you know if if you know something happened with a family member I, it would be so helpful for me to know that this is something that the community believes in um, that we have you know an understanding that it's really about that healing you know rather than like you were talking about that I don't, coercion is a strong word, but you know that the focus is really about that healing. It's also about that accountability, but the collective accountability, I think, is the way that I've read that. Um, you know, rather than it just the onus being on the individual. And one of our previous uh, guests, Judge Abby from the Yurok Nation, really talked about this, and it wasn't necessarily in, in the peacemaking sense. However, it was just in that, that community healing and, and, you know, when we can do it together, you know, we have um, much better outcomes for ourselves and our families. And I absolutely love and appreciate that because that's part of, you know, the conversations that we want to bring through these podcasts is just really celebrating and recognizing, you know, that we, we, we can do it. You know, and that, you know, when we are able to, you know, we can gather together as a community. And it's not just to celebrate, you know, in our gatherings and our ceremonies, but it's also to really look at solving, you know, these these challenges and knowing, you know, when we come and we have that, you know, intergenerational trauma, you know, we also need to recognize that we have that intergenerational healing and teaching you know and so how do we how do we you know take both of those together uh, you know and and really figure out ways that we can change the outcomes i guess yeah absolutely you're hitting it on the head there and and one of the beautiful things about this it's kind of an irony but um maybe just to the english-speaking world because i think i've heard elders talk about this all along that um Western science is increasingly, psychological science is increasingly starting to come up with um, things called resiliency factors. And these are things that make people, and usually it's in the context of children, make children stronger, more able to weather bad things happening and, and basically work through them and get past them and still be healthy and, and, and adaptive. Mm -hmm. um, the, the list of resiliency factors, usually when they're developed, if you look at it, it looks a lot like participation in tribal cultures would lead to that. And mm -hmm. so if you look at um, a child welfare decision and a peace circle resolving the issue, 
the benefit, there's going to be benefits that accrue to the children because all these people are around them. And, and in fact, knowing that there's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of adults besides your parents who care about your well-being is a resiliency factor. So more kids, the more kids have more of that, the better for those mm -hmm. kids. Um, and, and in multiple ways, those sorts of things fall to the kids from implementing this sort of a process. And guess what? That's a native process anyway. Um, we mm -hmm. have extended families who care about us, and, and a lot of us know that, and that makes us stronger. Um, similarly, the young parents, typically, who are, who are having difficulties also need some help, too. They're having problems. That's how we got there in the first place. And having the circle of people around them, their family, and others from their community also strengthens them. It's resiliency factors for the parents as well. Helps them to do better. So we're building our families up instead of basically picking them apart and, and harming them more with labels and with sentences and, and penalties mm -hmm. and so on. So, mm -hmm. and these are the way we're, we're trying to imitate something about how our ancestors did it. And so we're basically recovering um, these ways of being that helped our community stay together and that led to the great resiliency. And, and, you know, people pointed out more and more these days how it's pretty much a miracle that natives and native culture are still alive in the way that they were, despite the efforts, the best efforts of the strongest country in the world to wipe it out. Well, this is one of the reasons why, because of resolving issues by getting together and talking about it and, and doing it in ways that makes people stronger and helps them recover from the problems that they were having. So you're right on it. And it's part of this beautiful movement that people like Judge Abby have, have been leading all the way. I, I consider mm -hmm. her a mentor. She was my first Indian law teacher in, in law school. In fact. Oh, right on. Yeah. I mean, we're all following in those sorts of footsteps, but she'll probably be the first to tell you that she's following in the footsteps of those before her too. So yeah, yeah isn't it beautiful? And, and hopefully we're going to make the next generations even stronger now. Yeah, I, I do. And I do think that, you know, this, I, I almost, I can almost feel, I guess, and, you know, being a, a, a parent of two adult children, I mean, I, I can feel that they're more invested in, you know, that healing and that transformation. And, you know, and I don't know if it's because I had the opportunity, you know, to introduce, you know, ceremonies and, and to them when they were much younger than, of course, when I was, because you know, in the 60s, the Relocation Act pulled us away from my reservation in North Dakota, you know, and brought us into the cities. And so, therefore, there was a, a break or a remove from, um, uh, you know, my tribe. We would go back often, but, you know, I, I feel like this next generation is really, you know, ready to, to say, this is what I need. And, you know, the, I, again, maybe it's I'm a grandma now. I don't know where the thinking and the thought is coming from, but I definitely feel like I see our youth really wanting and hungry and, and getting, you know, their, their spiritual needs met. Um, I've seen it, you know, with some of the youth councils that are happening across Indian country. And, you know, they're demanding that, you know, we take a look at, you know, and, and we bring in those values and those belief systems uh, into, into um, their members, you know, so their members have and know where they need to go and how they need to access. Um, so, I mean, I love this conversation, Brett. And again, you know, when we talked with you in an earlier podcast, you know, we just teased a little bit with these this, this peacemaking circles. Um, 
But I just am curious, is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know or learn about who perhaps, again, never have heard of peacemaking circles? Or is there, um, you know, some work, again, that you want to highlight that maybe you didn't think about? What, what else do you want to say about this? Yeah, I just encourage people to, to check it out and, and realize that you can do it. It can start really simply. I mean, you can do this in your family. I remember raising kids and, and um, somebody would have a problem at school of some sort and it would come back with a report from a teacher. And we'd sit in a circle and say, here's, here's what we heard happened. And then we'd go around and say to each family member, here's, here's how that impacts me or makes me feel. And here's what I want for you, the child who had done wrong. <laughs> here's what I would like more. And here, and, and is there a way that we can support you? And they get a chance to talk too. And mm -hmm. So you can do circles within your family. A lot of people already probably do. I mean, that's one of the things that we find is some communities are really receptive to this because it just makes sense. And so just, you know, um, just remember that it may be, looking within is a way to go. Maybe we have these answers within our traditional cultures and within our values that we already carry forward. And, and um, don't be afraid to try something new because the outer system doesn't work. Courts don't work all the time in the mainstream. There's plenty of news and, and reports on the record about that. So of course it might not be working as well as you'd like in your tribal community. And you have something to go to, uh, some alternatives to consider constructing or reconstructing. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I really, again, appreciate just thank you, Miigwech, you know, Brett, for just taking the time. I know how extremely busy you are and just just helping us to understand more about peacemaking circles, particularly as this, you know, promising practice out there. You know, one, again, that honors our traditional values and beliefs that can be, you know, molded to fit communities as different as they are, recognizing the varying governmental you know, the infrastructures, right? Um, so again, my hope is that someday we can bring you back. We'll keep, you know, following you and, and watching so we can we can keep including you because you just bring such a, a, you know, wealth of information um, and, you know, that, that, you know, you're, of course, the legal lens that you have, but also, you know, as an Indigenous person and then that direct practice work that you've done and you've seen. So, and for those of you that want additional information, um, peacemaking.narc.org uh, is a site that you could go in and learn more about this. Um, so I don't know, Brett, if you have any other closing remarks? No, that's it. I really appreciate this series and, and all the work that you all are doing as well. This is, this is what we all do. We're all trying to make it a better world. And, I appreciate the invitation to jump in and, and add my piece to it. So um, keep it up. Fantastic. Well, take care, everyone, and please join us for more episodes of Reclaiming the Child Welfare Narrative. Way ya, hey ya, hey ya, way ya, hey ya, ho, way yo, way ya.